7 a.m. on the West Coast, 10 a.m. on the East Coast of America. It's 3 p.m. in London, 7.30 in Mumbai, India, 11 p.m. in Kyoto, Japan. And in Malaysia, it's 1978. I'm Jay Sheldon, and I'm not wearing pants. And... I am hot as hell. <laughs> Still. No, I don't mean I'm hot. I mean I'm hot. You see, in, in, in BM, in Malay, it's easy to distinguish whether or not, you know, you're hot or hot. Because if it's spicy hot, it's padas. And if it's hot as in temperature, it's Panas. It sounds similar, but very different words. English, you don't have that. You say you're hot, it could mean one of 50 different things. English is so screwed up. Anyway, <laughs> yes, it's just there has been no rain. I noticed tonight on our walk with Miko that uh, the grass, everybody's lawn is like dead and crunchy. Uh, we haven't had rain in well over a week, probably two almost, and the days have been unbelievably hot, 31, 32, probably 33 degrees. I'm used to Celsius now, so I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, except hot, and it's relentless. It just does not stop. Welcome to our viewers of our live broadcast, which is happening right now across Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, Twitch.tv, and Rumble.com, our brand new outlet there on Rumble.com. Hello to all of our Rumble viewers. Thank you for joining us. Be sure and hit that Rumble plus sign. And uh, if you're on Facebook, YouTube, like, share, follow, all those important things. Also, a welcome into our podcast listeners. We are, of course, also a podcast. The audio part of our show goes out just minutes after we're done with our live stream. And uh, it's supposed to be running at the front of my show, but it doesn't always run. At the moment, we're doing a little cross-promotion between the wonderful Debbie Wright's podcast, which is called Never Too Late. So we want to tip the hat and say hi to Debbie Wright over there in the U.S. and her great podcast called Never Too Late. So when you're done listening to this podcast, you can find Debbie Wright's Never Too Late podcast. Just give it a search. You'll find it there and give her a listen and a subscribe. Thanks to Debbie Wright for helping to uh, promote I'm Not Wearing Pants also. Let's go, Brandon. All right. And yes, for those of you who are very perceptive, you will notice my tooth is back. Yay. You know what? I got to tell you, she didn't give me a discount for this. I don't get free dental work for this, but I have got to tip, tip of the hat and a hello to Dr. Lim at the Neo Smile Dental Clinic in Sripataling. She is an amazing dentist. She's an incredible woman, very caring, and uh, really will take care of you. I, I could do a lot worse than to recommend Dr. Lim. She is a wonderful person. And she actually, I was going to wind up having to be without my tooth for like 10 days. And I 
I was trying to think, how am I going to keep doing this podcast or, or live stream with the camera? I'm going to have to wear a mask. So anyway, she came up with a solution. My tooth is back. It's permanent. It feels great. Everything is fine. And I can smile again. So thank you, Dr. Lim at Neo Smile Dental Clinic. If you're looking for a new dentist, check her out. She's phenomenal. And once again, no, I did not get a discount or free dental work for this. I'm doing it because she's just that good. And we like to say thank you to people who do good things. All right. She got me back on the track. Okay, let's go, Brandon. What else are we doing? <laughs> okay, let's see. Oh, I know. Before we get to the Miko update, I want to share with you a J update. And that is this cool thing. Check this out. This is my old lotus plant. I have had this thing for five, six, seven years, I think. And this is the old one in a big old ugly. It's got algae and crap all over it. But you can see the old lotus pods here where the blooms came. I had three this time around. It blooms about once every... I don't know, once every couple of months, maybe. And uh, I was told, do not cut off the old leaves or the old flower pods once they go to seed. Well, this time around, the next picture here, you'll see a close-up. Wow, that's bright. That's the seed pod after it's uh, put out its seeds. This is the very pod that I collected the seeds from. And I have tried to do this three or four times. I never have any luck, whether it, they just don't germinate. One time I dropped the glass and it broke and all the seeds cracked and the, the little shoots that were coming out broke off. So I, I had almost given up and I thought, you know what? All right, I'm going to try it one more time. So I grabbed the seeds. I did all the stuff you're supposed to do to germinate the seeds and take a look at this next picture. That's what's growing from the seeds I germinated that came out of that pod. So this is the mom and these are the babies. <laughs> it's actually growing. I cannot believe it. If you're listening to the podcast, go over to rumble.com, check out the, the live show, uh, the recorded uh, live show. But she's actually taken off, not only put up these leaves, but put up some of the standing leaves. So I've been fertilizing it a little bit according to the way you're supposed to, I guess. And uh, I'll let you know if we have any luck. Um, we may wind up with flowers too. It's a pink lotus, by the way. So very cool. I'm so pleased. I'm so proud of myself. Can you tell? <laughs> oh, man. And uh, finally, one, one uh, personal note. My producer, Bell. We produce a couple of different shows on uh, on Facebook and YouTube. One is called Urban Jungle Food. One is called Random Acts. And uh, check them out. Give us a like and a follow over there. But she sent me this, this video. I cannot play the music because I will get a copyright strike. But I wanted to share this with you. She sent me this and said, I found your doppelganger. Take a look. I've never, I've heard of the song because it was a big yeah, 90s dance hit, but I've never heard of it done by this group Bastille. It's the story of a cop. It's a very cool music video, and I'm sorry I, I can't play the, the music itself, 
But look at this guy. If By the way, I, I played the role of uh, Tony Yusuf's dad in the film Shadow Play, in which I play a cop. And my wardrobe and the look was very much like this. I'm going to skim through here, show you some of this footage. But this guy, I, I cannot believe how much he looks like me. It is insane. I'm not saying, whoa, look at me. I'm just saying this is unbelievable, this doppelganger of me. Look at that. Go watch Shadow Play, by the way. Go check out, or you know what? If you play the game Simulacra, I also, for some reason, I always get cast as a cop, an old detective. Um, check out either Simulacra or Shadow Play. You'll love Shadow Play. But um, my character looked exactly like this in that film, and it's incredible how much this guy actually looks like me. It is insane. Let's get back to uh, a couple of close-ups of this guy. Where is he? There's a scene at the end where he's dead <laughs> somehow. I don't know what happened. This is, it's a weird music video, but it's quite cool. Uh, let's play. Oh, there we go. There, that's me dead. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, check it out. If you're over on YouTube, check out, you know, put in the search bar, put um, Bastille, B-A-S-T-I-L-L-E, of the night, official music video. You can check it out. The strangest thing. And thank you, Bill, for sharing that. Okay, it's time. Miko update. Me, 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 Miko update. <laughs> She's here. She's downstairs sleeping tonight. And she had an incredibly busy day today. Uh, she's doing well. Not too much to update except to tell you about her adventure. This was at uh, City Park next to Wanutama Shopping Center here in uh, Malaysia. And uh, she had a great time, made a bunch of new friends, and spent a lot of time in this fenced-in off-leash area. Uh, you'll see here. Uh, can I get my mouse back? Yes. No. Go back to the wide shot. There you go. Okay. So this is her. This is the fenced-in area. It's a great, great area where the dogs, owners are very responsible there. They keep an eye on their dogs. They break up any little incident that happens, but usually before it happens. But uh, she had an absolute ball today. And then we went out, and you, I don't know if you can see it, but back behind here, there's a lake. I think it's probably a man-made lake. It's got some turtles and frogs and things in it. But she went down to, to look when we left the off-leash area. She's back on her leash. She went down to look in the water and didn't realize that the bank didn't slope down. It cut straight off. And as she stepped off, she splashed right into the lake. And she didn't get too scared. She was all right. She did okay. But... It surprised the hell out of her. So she wound up uh, getting another bath when we got home. But uh, she she wound up falling in the lake today. It was great. She was fine. No problem. She recovered in an instant and, uh, and everything was fine. So she, she's doing very well. And the last bit of update on Miko is we just weighed her last night. The average weight for a female Shiba Inu is about nine kilos, nine plus a little bit, maybe that's average weight. 
This little monster is 11.1 kilos. 11.1 kilos. And if you look here, look, she's not that fat. You see that? Check that out. She's very solid, though. Very solid. I think this was her just after she fell in the lake. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 11.1 kilos. She's doing very well. Fantastic. Now, by the way, I'm just going to add this onto my Miko update. This isn't Miko, obviously, but how cute is this? Check it out. Squid Games, Shiba Inu. <laughs> Don't ask me how they got this Shiba to sit still for this, but this is a classic. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm sorry. It's a Shiba Inu in one of the guards uh, from the Squid Games outfit. And it is just amazing. You got to check it out. Go over to our rumble.com slash Jay Sheldon and check out the uh, the video uh, rebroadcast of our show. You can check out the all the visuals that uh, go with the program. All right. We promised you stupid things pets have done tonight. So we're going to get into that now. Uh, I'm not going to go on a whole rant about how, how all animals are dumb uh, because that would be a uh, an utter lie. And we all know animals are actually quite intelligent, but even the most intelligent species can have some really dumb moments. Serena Lee, hey! <laughs> Welcome in. Welcome to the show. Thank you for stopping by. Be sure you hit that like and share button, Serena. Thank you. I think I've got something from you tonight in my show. I've got so many tabs open here, it's insane. All right. So... Unfortunately, the, oh, here we go. This, these are just some, it's from a website called diffused.com. You'll find a link in the show notes. You can check it out yourself if you want to. But this is a pit bull. And uh, one day I hear him growling and barking outside. Not normal for him. He usually barks one or two times and then he's ready to come in. So he, uh, this, the owner goes outside and he's having a standoff with something. He keeps inching closer to something that the owner can't see, then growls and barks and runs away. And then uh, the owner calls out to him. He comes over, he whimpers, and then returns and continues this growling. Getting closer to inspect what he thought maybe would be a toad or a mouse or something, anything. Turns out he was having a 10-minute standoff with a dead leaf. <laughs> that was... <laughs> was all this commotion over a leaf although i have to tell you i've seen miko do the same thing over a, a bamboo leaf that falls in the yard she'll go nuts check this ingenious move out my dog wouldn't come in from the front front garden so i rang the doorbell and she ran straight in so she could look out the window to see who was there so the dog is outside won't come in, the owner rings the doorbell, and the dog runs around, comes into the window to see who's there. Brilliant. Brilliant. I bring bagels as gifts. I'm not going to do all of these. Check it out. The link's in our show notes tonight, but these are funny. 4 a.m. Woke up to the sound of my cats. I've hunted and caught a thing noise. It's a high-peached squeak, mouse, meow, thrill, happiest of cats, meow. She's running closer and closer, squeaking all the while, and she obviously had her prize in her mouth as she ran. 
I live in a place that rarely gets mice or anything nasty, so as usual, I assumed it was her toy she wanted to show off. And then she dropped a full bag of bagels on my face. <laughs> the cat was doing with bagels. But this is great. This one I think we all can relate to if we have pets. At 4 p.m. every day, this guy's dogs look out. There's a picture here of the dogs looking out the front window to watch for the owner to come home. They still do this despite the fact the guy's been working from home for over a year. <laughs> he works from home, he's home all day, and yet every day, like clockwork, four o'clock, the dogs go to the window to watch for him to come home. <laughs> Amazing. All right, I'm not gonna bore you with any more of these, but do check them out. It's a funny article. There's a lot of great ones there. It's at diffused.com. You'll find the link in our, our show notes tonight. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, what else? Oh, we've got, we uh, yeah, silly animals. Okay, <laughs> this is great. You're going to love this. I, I am not a fan of having monkeys for pets. I just don't think monkeys were meant to be pets. I know a lot of people do, and I'll tell you, growing up, I wanted a monkey so bad when I was a kid. I would still love to have a monkey, but I realize it is not something that, that we should do. We should not be keeping monkeys as pets. But take a look at this obviously pet monkey helping out in the kitchen. And take a look. He's snapping. You got to check. The, again, I'm sorry, podcast listeners. It's a visual. But this monkey is prepping what looks like string beans. He's breaking them in half. And every now and then he'll look around checking out his work. I don't know. He doesn't eat any of them. He's just breaking them up. He's snapping them in half and throwing them back in the pot. His expressions are absolutely priceless. Look, at it's, it's like wincing every time he snaps one. <laughs> this is great. Unbelievable. What a helper. It would be awesome to have a helper like that around the kitchen, wouldn't it? That is a classic. That is so cool. Had to share that in our weird animal segments tonight. All right. And uh, from the weird to the awe moment, a seven-year-old kid, little guy, has been named Kid of the Year after rescuing more than 1,300 dogs. Wow. A quote from this seven-year-old who said, Dogs don't need to be in a shelter. They need to do things. Compassionate little boy will warm your heart and soul. And there he is getting an award from the ASPCA. Uh, seven-year-old Roman McCann is on a mission to save dogs. The caring boy focuses on the oldest, most unwanted animals that are on the euthanasia list in shelters, and he does everything he can to help them find a home. So far, he has saved over 1,300 unwanted dogs and cats. Roman began rescuing animals when he was four years old, obviously with the help of his mom. 
Sully uh, is his mom's name. Sully videos the adorable Roman playing with shelter dogs and cats. He goes around, he talks to each one of the cats and dogs. And then she posts the video on their Facebook page. And according to appreciative shelter staff, Roman is a real-life dog whisperer. And there is a picture of seven-year-old Roman. A tip of the hat to you, Roman. Fantastic. Uh, if you want to check this out, I think the link also would be in our show notes tonight. It's a dogdispatch.com. What a kid. What an amazing kid. Wow. Unbelievable. All right. Why does this light keep coming up? Can we dump that? Thank you. All right. I don't... I have this ghostly appearance when I have that extra light on. It's not Halloween yet. By the way, we're working on a Halloween special because if I'm not mistaken, our show... Uh, yeah, the day our Saturday night show two weeks from now will be the day before Halloween. So uh, I will have a special show filled with scary stories, an hour's worth or so of scary stories for Halloween. We're working on putting that together for you now. Okay, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What else have we got here? Oh, we got some great, great stories of people doing the right thing and, and doing nice things. This is from Ranker.com, a link in the show notes. Check it out over on Ranker.com. Marie Curry and her husband in 1903 won the Nobel Prize. They had discovered the elements radium and polonium, along with another researcher. In 1911, she won another Nobel, but this time Curry was a widow. Later, after an affair with a married fellow scientist, she fell out of favor with the public. And then World War I broke out. Well, Curry tried to help the French government by getting her gold medals melted. The bank would not do the deed. They would not melt down the Nobel Prizes, which are actually gold. Uh, she donated all her prize money and bought war bonds. But even this was not enough for her, and desperate, despite all odds, Curry invented the use of x-rays. As we now know them today, no one at the time would believe that she, a mere woman, could actually do something for science. So Curry made mobile x-ray units. In fact, that is her driving one right there in this picture, one of her mobile x-ray units. And uh, she drove to the battlefield to prove how it could help injured soldiers. It was this research that finally uh, felled her in 1934, as she had a habit of carrying lethal doses of radioactive material in her pockets. At the same time, or at that time rather, no one knew just how dangerous uh, those radioactive pellets were. Uh, they eventually led to her death, but uh, she did uh, indeed, and amazing, she actually offered to melt down her medals to help France during World War II. Do you know that Orca's grandmothers dote on their grandkids? This is another one of those potpourri all full of all kinds of crap shows, but they're cool stuff. 
studies have shown that orca whale females undergo menopause, and these non-productive toothed whales then experience the grandmother effect, like humans. Orca females stop breeding between the ages of 30 and 40, but they live much longer than that. And once they can no longer breed, they help raise the calves of their children. In fact, they are the only non-human species where non-reproducing females will help rear the grandchildren. Studies have also shown that once grandmas use their experience to help their families, like guiding everyone to their favorite meal, Chinook salmon. This leads to a healthier family on the whole. So even in the cases of orcas, grandmas know best. And we'll wrap it here. There's more stories. You can check it out over at Ranker.com. But I love this one. As you remember, the incredible, unforgettable Fukushima disaster, uh, the earthquake and the tsunami which hit the uh, Fukushima prefecture in Japan and led to the worst nuclear disaster in the world after Chernobyl. Uh, uh, Nuclear power plant of Fukushima, Dachi, leaked radioactive material leading authorities to evacuate most of the prefecture. Uh, Less than six miles from the plant, Naoto Mutsumura also fled with his parents, only to return later. A fifth-generation rice farmer, Matsumura, could not abandon the animals on his farm. He admitted that initially he was quite fearful to come back, but when he saw the animals remaining healthy, he knew he'd made the right decision. And Matsumura still lives to this day in the partially abandoned city of Tomioka. Today he cares not only for his own animals, but also the farm animals and pets of residents who never moved back. Uh, also has rescued many from their half-feral state, and researchers said he may get sick after 30 to 40 years because of the radiation exposure. Uh, He's in his mid-50s now, and he said he couldn't care less. Wow, that is a brilliant story, and what an amazing man, with his heart in exactly the right place. That's incredible. Fantastic. All right, what else we got here? Oh, speaking of speaking of medicine, your heart being in the right place. I know it's a weird segue, but bear with me. <laughs> Excuse me. My dear friend Alvin Tan, who shares some of the coolest stuff on his Facebook page. I love your stuff, Alvin. Thank you. Um, he shared this. I looked it up, and it's actually true. Not that I doubt what you post, Alvin. But check this out. Our ancestors believed that music had the power to harmonize one's soul in ways that traditional medicine could not. In fact, in ancient China, one of the earliest uses of music was for healing. And take a look at this. These are the Chinese characters for music, and medicine. The Chinese character for medicine actually comes from the character for music. How cool is that? You know, I I really have to believe that because I've been very musical my whole life. I'm not 
bragging. I have I was born with the ability to pick up almost any instrument and play it. Not a virtuoso, but I can pluck out a tune on anything you hand me, even usually if I haven't seen it before. I, I taught myself the bagpipes. I played the bagpipes. Uh, I've played a bunch of Japanese instruments. Not well, but I did here on the stream many, 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 many shows ago. And you can still find it here on Rumble.com or YouTube or Facebook. Uh, but no matter what, whenever I hear music, it will instantly put me in a in a mood one way or the other it'll make me feel better it'll make me feel depressed if i need a good cry there's a few particular songs i can listen to that guarantee work every time so medicine and music not that far apart and this was fascinating thank you for posting this alvin the two chinese characters one for music and one for medicine which comes from that very character that is so cool see we are so full of interesting crap tonight, I'm telling you. <laughs> Speaking of which, how about this ad? This is an ad from 1964. Now listen, do not use your phones while you're driving, okay? I cannot emphasize enough. You get told it all the time, you know it distracts you, you know it's a stupid, dumbass thing to do. And I know that a lot of you still do it, okay? Don't do it. You want to get yourself killed? Go jump off a bridge somewhere. You'll get somebody else killed. And that's not a good thing. You want to kill yourself? Just knock yourself out. You kill somebody else, that's where the line gets drawn. Do not play with your phone. And I cannot, I cannot go anywhere that you don't see somebody yakking on the phone, typing, trying to drive. This is from 1964. <laughs> Take a look at that. Ooh, and here's the big news from General Electric. Now, from your car, you can place or receive calls from any place in the world with General Electric's simultaneous duplex mobile phone. But check this out. Look at this. Hang on, let me get my mouse back. She's dialing a rotary phone. You see that? Look at that in this picture. I don't know what these buttons do. I can't get close enough to tell. That's the only description there. General Electric's simultaneous duplex mobile phone. She's got a receiver in her hand that looks exactly like the old telephones we used to have when I was a kid. And a rotary dial. Let's hope she's pulled off to the side of the road before she starts dialing phone numbers. <laughs> Same. This is 1964. Serena says, my husband does that all the time, and now I don't ride with him. Good on you, Serena. Either take the phone away until he becomes a big boy. Or don't ride with him. Smart move. <laughs> I'm telling you. This is insane. Look at that. I love that picture. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. A couple more that we're going to get on to at the beginning of a new chapter, uh, a new section of our book. The last section, which is called uh, 
Life Under the Martians from the War of the Worlds with H.G. Wells. We'll do that in a minute. Uh, but I just wanted to share a couple of decent people that uh, deserved uh, deserved a tip of the hat and a hello. You probably have never heard of this guy, but now you have. His name is Paul Williams. No, not that Paul Williams, if you're old enough. Paul Williams was a black architect. Listen to this story. This is amazing. He learned to draw upside down. So when he sat across from his clients, because this was 1920, and many would not sit next to him, so you're sitting in a meeting with a client and the client, because you're black and it's 1920s, doesn't want to sit right next to you. You have to have the table between you and them. So he took to himself to learn how to draw upside down. He wanted to prove to himself mostly that he deserved a place in the world. And he went on to win numerous awards designed houses for Frank Sinatra and Lucille Ball, built in neighborhoods in many cases he was not even allowed to live in back in the 1920s. What an amazing man. From a site called Real African Books on Facebook. Check it out. Give him a follow over there. History Hustle, Paul Williams, 1920s architect learned to draw upside down because the clients, because he was black, wouldn't sit next to him. Absolutely amazing story. Fantastic. And finally, always got to leave you with some words of wisdom. And tonight, it comes from the amazing Freddie Mercury. Someone will always be prettier. Someone will always be smarter. Someone will always be younger, but they will never be you. You do you. Words of advice, wise words from the amazing Freddie Mercury. Wow. All right, we got bright again. Hold on. Not that one. Oh, yo, wait. Dump that. Okay, one, two, three. There we go. <laughs> it's it's behind the scenes stuff. Just bear with me while I talk to myself, okay? You should be used to it by now if you're a regular viewer and listener of the stream. <laughs> You've got to be used to it by now. Oh, man. All right, here we go. It's time for our book. So for those of you who are not interested in our book, have a good weekend. Have a good night. Uh, some of you hang out, listen in. Maybe I'm just background noise, which is fine. But uh, we read classic books on this stream for the last part of the show. We've done all kinds of amazing books. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, The Little Prince, uh, Alice in Wonderland. We've been doing The War of the Worlds. Honestly, I almost stopped the book halfway through because, frankly, I find it a little boring. It's not written in such a style that lends itself really well to being read. It's getting better. We only have eight or ten more chapters to go. They're short, shorter chapters. So we're going to start the second half of the book. It's broken into two books. And uh, the first half was all pretty much a whole lot of exposition and telling you what was going on with the Martians, how they landed, how they started 
killing everyone in London and then expanding out from there. And the second part of the book goes into uh, life under the Martians. Anyway, before we do that, a tip of the hat to Gutenberg.org. Gutenberg Project is where we get all these public domain books for uh, from. Check them out. Very cool website. And of course, if you want to help uh, the show, you can head over to patreon.com slash Sheldon. You'll see a link going by here. Or go to linktree slash Sheldon and check out our uh, links over there. But go to Patreon, help out by uh, making a small donation over there. There it is. It's scrolling over the, over the bottom now. You can check it out right there. And thank you for those of you who do that. Really appreciate it a lot for your help. Okay, let's head on up and over to book two of The War of the Worlds. It's called Earth Under the Martians. Chapter one, Underfoot. In the first book, I've wandered so much from my own adventures to tell of the experiences of my brother that all through the last two chapters, I and the curate have been lurking in the empty house at Halliford whither we fled to escape the black smoke. There I will resume. We stopped there all Sunday night and all the next day and the day of the panic in a little island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. We could do nothing but wait in aching inactivity during those two weary days. My mind was occupied by anxiety for my wife. I figured her at Leatherhead, terrified, in danger, mourning me already as a dead man. I paced the rooms and cried aloud when I thought of how I was cut off from her, of all that might happen to her in my absence. My cousin, I knew, was brave enough for any emergency, but he was not the sort of man to realize danger quickly, to rise promptly. What was needed now was not bravery, but circumspection. My only consolation was to believe that the Martians were moving Londonward and away from her. Such vague anxieties keep the mind sensitive and painful. I grew very weary and irritable with the curate's perpetual ejaculations. I tired of the sight of his selfish despair. After some ineffectual remonstrance, I kept away from him, staying in a room, evidently a children's schoolroom, containing globes, forms, copybooks. When he followed me thither, I went to a box room at the top of my house, and in order to be alone with my aching miseries, I locked myself in. We were hopelessly hemmed in by the black smoke all that day and the morning of the next. There were signs of people in the next house on Sunday evening, a face at the window and moving lights, and later the slamming of a door. But I don't know who these people were, nor what became of them. We saw nothing of them the next day. The black smoke drifted slowly riverward all through Monday morning, creeping nearer and nearer to us, driving at last along the roadway outside the house that hid us. A Martian came across the fields about midday, laying the stuff with a jet of superheated steam that hissed against the walls, smashed all the windows it touched, and scalded the curate's hand as he fled out of the front room. 
When at last we crept across the sodden rooms and looked out again, the country northward was as though a black snowstorm had passed over it. Looking toward the river, we were astonished to see an unaccountable redness mingling with the black of the scorched meadows. <clears throat> For a time, we didn't see how this change affected our position, save that we were relieved of our fear of the black smoke. But later, I perceived that we were no longer hemmed in, that now we might get away. So soon I realized that the way of escape was open. My dream of action returned, but the curate was lethargic and unreasonable. We're safe here, he repeated, safe here. I resolved to leave him, would that I had. Wiser now for the artilleryman's teaching, I sought out food and drink. I found oil and rags for my burns, and I also took a hat and a flannel shirt that I found in one of the bedrooms. When it was clear to him that I meant to go alone, had reconciled myself to go alone, he suddenly roused himself to come. And all being quiet throughout the afternoon, we started around five o'clock, as I should judge, along the blackened road to Sunbury. In Sunbury, and at intervals along the road, were dead bodies, lying in contorted attitudes, Horses as well as men, overturned carts, luggage, all covered thickly with black dust. That pall of cindery powder made me think of what I had read of the destruction of Pompeii. We got to Hampton Court without misadventure, our minds full of strange and unfamiliar appearances, and at Hampton Court our eyes were relieved to find a patch of green that had escaped the suffocating drift. We went through Bushy Park with its deer going to and fro under the chestnuts, and some men and women hurrying in the distance towards Hampton, and so we came to Twickenham. These were the first people we saw. Away across the road, the woods beyond Ham and Pen uh, Petersham were still afire. Twickenham was uninjured by either heat ray or black smoke. And there were more people about here, though none could give us news, for for the most part they were like ourselves, taking advantage of a lull to shift their quarters. I have an impression that many of the houses were still occupied by scared inhabitants, too frightened even for flight. Here, too, the evidence of a hasty rout was abundant along the road. I, I remember most vividly three smashed bicycles in a heap, pounded into the road by the wheels of subsequent carts. We crossed Richmond Bridge about half-past eight. We hurried across the exposed bridge, of course, but I noticed, floating down the stream, a number of red masses, some many feet across. I didn't know what those were. There was no time for scrutiny, and I put a more horrible interpretation on them than they deserved. Here again on the Surrey side were black dust that had once been smoke and dead bodies, a heap near the approach to the station. But we had no glimpse of the Martians until we were some way towards Barnes. We saw in the blackened distance a group of three people running down a side street toward the river, but otherwise it seemed deserted. Up the hill, Richmond Town was burning briskly, 
Outside of the town of Richmond, there was no trace of the black smoke. Then, suddenly, as we approached Q, came a number of people running, and the upper works of a Martian fighting machine loomed in sight over the housetops, not a hundred yards away from us. We stood aghast at our danger, and had the Martian looked down, we must immediately have perished. We were so terrified, we dared not go on, but turned aside and hid in a shed in the garden. There the curate crouched, weeping silently and refusing to stir again. But my fixed idea of reaching Leatherhead would not let me rest, and in the twilight I ventured out again. I went through a shrubbery and along a passage beside a big house standing on its own grounds, and so emerged upon the road towards Kew. The curate I left at the shed, but he came hurrying after me. That second start was the most foolhardy thing I ever did, for it was manifest the Martians were about us. No sooner had the curate overtaken me than we saw either the fighting machine we had seen before or another far away across the meadow in the direction of Kew Lodge. Four or five little black figures hurried before it across the grey-green field, and in a moment it was evident this Martian pursued them. In three strides he was among them, and they ran radiating from his feet in all directions. Apparently he tossed them onto the great metallic carrier which projected behind him, much as a workman's basket hangs over his shoulders. It was the first time I realized that Martians might have any other purpose than destruction from defeated humanity. We stood for a moment petrified and then turned and fled through a gate behind us into a walled garden, fell into rather than found a fortunate ditch, and lay there, scarce due to daring to whisper to each other until the stars were out. I suppose it was nearly eleven o'clock before we gathered any courage to start again, no longer venturing onto the road, but sneaking along hedgerows and plantations and watching keenly through the darkness. He on the right, I on the left, for the Martians who seemed to be all about us. In one place we blundered upon a scorched and blackened area now cooling and ashen, and a number of scattered dead bodies of men horribly burned about the heads and trunks, but with their legs and boots mostly intact, and of dead horses, fifty feet perhaps behind a line of four ripped guns and smashed gun carriages. Sheen, it seemed, had escaped destruction, but the place was silent and deserted. Here we happened on no dead. Through the night was too dark for us to see into the side of the road of the place. In Sheen, my companion suddenly complained of faintness and thirst and we decided to try one of the houses. The first we entered, after a little difficulty with the window, was a semi-detached villa. I found nothing eatable left in the place but some moldy cheese. There was, however, water to drink, and I took a hatchet, which promised to be useful in our next house-breaking. Then we crossed to a place where the road turns towards Mort Lake. Here there stood a white house with a walled garden 
and in the pantry of this domicile we found a store of food, two loaves of bread in a pan, an uncooked steak, and a half a ham. I gave this catalogue so precisely, because as it happened we were destined to subsist upon the store for the next fortnight. Bottled beer stood under a shelf, and there were two bags of haricot beans and some limp lettuces. This pantry opened into a kind of wash-up kitchen, and in this was firewood. It was also a cupboard in which we found nearly a dozen of burgundy-tinted soups and salmon, and two tins of biscuits. We sat in the adjacent kitchen in the dark, for we dared not strike a light, and we ate bread and ham and drank beer out of the same bottle. The curate, who was still timorous and restless, was now, oddly enough, for pushing on, and I was urging him to keep up his strength by eating when the thing happened that was to imprison us. And we'll tell you about what that thing was on our next live stream. Cool beans. Good place to sup. All right, we started the second book, and we are getting close to the end of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Don't forget, help support the show over at patreon.com slash Sheldon To our podcast listeners, thank you so much for all the downloads and likes and subscriptions. Wherever you are, Facebook, rumble.com slash Sheldon, YouTube, twitch.tv. Uh, like and share, subscribe, follow. Thank you. I'll see you Monday. Have a great weekend. I'm Jay Sheldon. I'm not wearing pants. Good night. Woo!